Good morning. As indicated, we'll be in John chapter 18. You know, the past several weeks, Jonathan's been leading us in understanding the marks and mission of the church from the uh, Christ's priestly prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, and so it seems appropriate to follow that as we uh, move through uh, to chapter 18, as we prepare also to think of uh, the Easter events. Hear now the word of God, John 18, 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with him, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Great Heavenly Father, you have preserved this word for some 2,000 years so that on this morning, this congregation, this family of believers may gather together and consider what you have said and to consider the person of Christ, his work and words. Lord, we need your spirit to do that. May he work mightily in us to open our ears, open our hearts and minds, and give us the truth from your word. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you normally expect to find stuff in the dark? I mean, uh, you know, if you can't find your watch, you're running late, do you turn out the lights and pull down the blinds and look under the dark bed for it? Well, you might, if you had a glow-in-the-dark watch. I mean, glow-in-the-dark watches are easier to find when everything is dark and dull around it. And so turning out the lights can actually be helpful. 
Now, after you found your watch and got where you were going, you might say to your friend, um, I wanted to find my stuff quickly, so I turned out the lights. And your friend would say, that's ironic. Well, it might not say, that's ironic. You might say, whoa, that's weird. Tell me more. I'd like to understand. What do you mean? Well, that's what John is doing for us here. He's pulled out some interesting contrasts, the unexpected ironies, so that you will sit up and take notice. You'll wake up and say, what's going on here? That's kind of strange. He wants us to encounter the unexpected and therefore desire to know more about this passage. So he structured it in this bouncing back and forth in this courtyard scene so that you will sit up and take notice. What do you see in this passage? Just just glancing over it, what do you see? Well, first thing you notice is it's dark. It's Passover night. We're in the darkness of this large house in Jerusalem. And what else do you notice? Well, you notice that there are sort of four scenes, four activities, four testimonies going on. You see a testimony from the high priest himself. So in those verses 12 through 14, you see a testimony regarding holiness. High priests are holy. And then in verses 15 through 18, you see the disciples of Jesus, the faithful followers of him. You see a testimony regarding faithfulness. And in verses 19 to 24, you see Jesus himself testifying before the judge. And so you see a testimony regarding righteousness. And then lastly, you see this brief encounter at the end, this testimony regarding fulfillment. Now, what do these testimonies show us? Well, there's another sort of theme you see here. It's a theme of togetherness, right? Uh, By the way, in in English, you can see the togetherness. There's the following and the leading. There's uh, Peter standing there, warming himself with the others by the fire. There's even Jesus bound, his hands together. But in Greek, we also see the, the prefix. It's a preposition, soon, is in front of seven words here. That's a common repetition. You see it in the word synagogue, synagogue. So we have this darkness, these testimonies, and this togetherness. And what does this show us? Well, John is painting this picture of unexpected ironies that Jesus alone is holy, faithful, righteous, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus alone, everyone else standing together, away from him, and Jesus alone is holy, faithful, righteous, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's look at that. the, The passage begins talking about the high priest. But notice there in verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews. What's interesting is that we don't need two years of investigation to expose collusion. This is collusion right here in the first verse. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and took him to the high priest. These are the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities colluding together. Now that should sound a little odd to you. There's this unholy character going on with the high priest. High priests are to be set apart, and here he is 
together with these Roman soldiers. We also see this awkward plurality. Now, you, you might not have picked up on this if you're not a good student of Jewish law, but what it says they first led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, why would they take Jesus to the father-in-law of the high priest? Well, it's because Annas used to be the high priest. Nearly 20 years prior, he'd been the high priest. And he'd served there for about seven years, and then the Romans deposed him. Now, that should sound strange to you. Hold on. That's unexpected. Why would the Romans depose a religious leader? And the answer is back to there's this crazy collusion going on, this corruption. And they replaced him with another guy. He lasted about a year, and then they replaced him with Annas' son, who served for a time. Then another guy was put in place by the Romans, and now Caiaphas, who is married to Annas' daughter. And so you see there's this awkward plurality, because the people are wondering, well, who exactly is the high priest? I mean, maybe it should really be Annas, because he was really the guy before the Romans took over, or maybe it's supposed to be Caiaphas. So to cover their bases, they're taking Jesus to both of them. There's this awkward plurality of high priests. Now, there's also a separateness, if you will. These are high priests. High priests are meant to be holy. Well, you, you read there in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. But you remember that, that this is not the first time that's recorded in Scripture. Back in John 11.50, we have the same statement coming from Caiaphas, the high priest, during the raising of Lazarus, immediately following that. And the high priest is announcing to the people that it's expedient that one man must die for the people. Well, you should notice right away, this is a hearing. This is a, Jesus has been arrested, and he's being brought before this court, and the judge has already given prejudicial testimony. He's already prejudiced the people to say, this man must die. It's also premeditated murder. They're going to declare him guilty on something they've already set out to do. It's also pragmatic. Now, he says it's for the best of the people, but it was really for his own political gain, but he's using pragmatism as his argument. And so we see the separateness of this high priest, but it is not a separateness of holiness. It's a separateness from the law. This high priest has now set himself above the law. You know that biblical expectations for high priests is that they should be set apart, but in holy ways, and they should intercede, they should protect, and they should be innocent. And so here we see this irony, this unexpected contrast where the high priest is not holy, he's not priestly, he's not interceding for Christ, he's not just, and now here's an interesting topsy-turvy twist, he's not wrong. In his unholiness, in his unjustness, he's not wrong. One man must die for the people, but he's not right for the or he's right, not, he's right, but not for the right reasons. He's wrong for the wrong reasons. And so we see this, this confusion about the high priest. Now, let me just take a quick 
sidestep and ask you a question. Are you confused about who the high priest is? I mean, the, the people in this group are wondering, well, who's really the high priest who should make this judgment? Are you confused about that? Now, you probably aren't confused. You'll probably say, oh, no, I know that Jesus is my high priest. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews testifies to him interceding on our behalf as the high priest. We've read the high priestly prayer in John 17. But are there moments when you're confused? Are there moments when someone comes to you and says, I'm really suffering right now. Would you pray for me? And you say, I'll pray for you because I'm a good Christian. I'll take that on your behalf. And you start to put yourself into the place of the high priest. Or do you say, yes, I will pray for you. In fact, let's pray together. Take my hand and let's kneel before our high priest, Jesus. Do you protect yourself from coming off as being high priestly when really you already have a high priest named Jesus? It's a caution to consider. So I ask you, which high priest do you follow? Well, that takes us to our next part in the uh, next testimony, this testimony regarding faithfulness. We know it's about faithfulness because in verse 15 it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. Now again, this is ironic. This is unexpected because we know what happens in the passage. He follows Jesus and yet he's going to deny following Jesus. John went on in. Now it says, it says another disciple. But you've read enough of the Gospel of John to know that John often makes indirect references to himself in a very humble way. We don't know that this other disciple is John. We just know that it was another disciple. But he entered with Jesus into the courtyard. And you can imagine the beloved disciple John entering in there. But whether it was John or a different disciple, somehow he knew the high priest, it says. Which is more of this sort of collusion. It seems that the high priest knows everybody. But Peter stood at the door and encountered a servant girl. And she says to him, now she casts this question in the negative. She's expecting a no answer. She says, you are also not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter weakens to this frail servant girl. It was quite common for servant girls to watch the gates of these expensive homes You remember later in Acts 12, uh, Peter encounters another servant girl, Rhoda, who's keeping an eye on the door. And here's this frail servant girl, and he responds, I am not. Now, that may sound a little odd. It may sound like he's lying. I mean, this man's a known disciple of Jesus. But again, there's a way in which it's sort of topsy-turvy true. Because at the moment he denies being a follower of Christ, he is not following Christ. So there's a truthful aspect to it. He's not wrong, even though he has just been, just become an unfaithful follower. And so he stands there fearful. By the way, it becomes habituating, right? He starts to repeat himself through this passage. It's so easy to say, no, I'm not to this servant girl, and then later it becomes so much easier to say, no, I'm not again. And it says, Peter then stood there with sinners. By the way, you've noticed, I'm sure, the irony 
of I am not. Uh, if you have a red letter edition, I happen to have a red letter edition, they can be helpful in engaging you know, the words of Christ on the page. If you were looking at the first part of chapter 18, let me just read to you the words in red from uh, the verses beginning this chapter. Whom do you seek? I am he. I am he. Whom do you seek? I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. You see, Jesus here in the garden, when he's being arrested, is declaring, I am he. By the way, in the Greek, the he isn't there, it's implied. He actually is saying, I am. And you immediately recognize that. This is what Moses has asked God. He said, how shall we know you? What shall we call you? What is your name? And God said, I am who I am. Which is why when Jesus says, I am he, it says they immediately fell to the ground because they knew what he was claiming, that he was in fact God. Jesus was faithful. And you see this irony here. His faithful follower is denying him with his own words, with the word not thrown in. I am not. Well, it's very true. He is not God. And it's very true at that moment. He's not following the Lord. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we read from 1 Corinthians. And you're very familiar with these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And if you're like me, you thought, you, you think, wow, yeah, on the night he was betrayed by Judas, he took bread. And that's, that's what that means, when he was betrayed by Judas. But do you see what else is happening on this night? He's being betrayed by the high priest of his faith. And he's being betrayed by one of his most cherished followers, Peter. Everyone was together in betraying Christ on this night. Jesus stood alone. You see, these testimonies show that Jesus alone is holy. Jesus alone is faithful. Why are you unfaithful? I mean, there are moments when you're unfaithful, right? There are moments when you question and doubt and deny. Scripture has a very simple answer to that question. You are unfaithful because of your unrighteousness. And that's the testimony we now have in verses 19 to 24, a testimony regarding righteousness. You see, Here we have this interrogation. Uh, Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now what's interesting about that? Jesus has been arrested and brought here into this home. By the way, this is a home of Annas and the home of Caiaphas. That may be confusing. Remember, it's a multiplicity of high priests. Imagine a large mansion. It's ancient Jerusalem. There's a courtyard with a portico around it. Annas lives in one wing, Caiaphas and, his, and the daughter of Annas live in another wing. The courtyard is where this charcoal fire is that they're huddled. And in one of those rooms that you can see from the courtyard, this interrogation is occurring. And he asks him about his disciples and his teaching. Well, that's against the law. 
It's against the law. Jewish law says you cannot be asked to testify against yourself, to incriminate yourself. We have this in English, British common law, American law. And yet he's asking him about his own teaching so that they can try to find evidence against him. But the law says, no, 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 bring the witnesses. Which is why Jesus responds, I've spoken openly to the world. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. It's another irony, right? He's saying, bring the witnesses, and guess what? The people who've heard him are right there in the courtyard. You can see them from the room. And he's saying, bring them in. Of course, we know it's ironic because Peter's out there busy denying him. And so what would he say if he came in the room? But Jesus alone is maintaining this attention to the law. And so this interrogation is illegal, it's unjust, it's cruel. What happens? He says, ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck him, struck Jesus with his hand. Now you all are good students of hermeneutics. You know the good principles of interpretation. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And John is giving you a wonderful opportunity to see this at work. Because you recall that in Matthew 5.39, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And here we have an image, a picture of what that could look like. You all know I have five children. The two oldest are boys. Maybe when they were younger, I'll just say when they were younger, if you said to them, what do you suppose it means to turn the other cheek? One of them might say, hit me again. And the other one might say, I'll just stand here and take it. Now, I'm not sure either one of those is a sound theological interpretation of what turn the other cheek means, but I am sure what this says right here. What did Jesus do when he was struck on the right cheek? He responds, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You see, turning the other cheek includes an appeal to justice and truth and righteousness. It includes standing for what is good and right and true. It also means he's standing there bound. I don't know if his hands were tied in front of him or behind him, but either way, they could have struck him on the other cheek at that moment, and he knew it. He was turning the other cheek for them and reminding them of righteousness. And so here we have Jesus alone is the righteous one. He makes his appeal to light. He's been open, appealed to testimony, asked them, my followers, and appealed to righteousness. And again, we have this irony. There are two witnesses to testify. Bring them in, bring them in. But instead, what does it say? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So from one high priest to another, a false high priest to another false high priest, they're sending the Lord of the universe to be judged. That's ironic. That's unexpected. And that brings us to our last testimony, the testimony of fulfillment verses 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they ask him a question, don't they? They say, 
uh, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Again, cast in the negative, and he, of course, answers again, I am not. Now, when you think about Peter, you probably think like I do. He's, he's sort of a uh, rooster, right? I mean, he, he sort of seems like a cocky kind of guy who would strut about. And here he is demurring. And they said, hey, uh, one of the ser- servants of the high priest, a relative whose man, who was a man whose Peter, Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you? Do you see the missed opportunity here? Peter has just witnessed a miracle. He cut off a guy's ear, and Jesus immediately healed it. And he had a great opportunity to witness and say, Wow, yeah, I was in the garden. Did you see what happened? It was amazing. I cut off this guy's ear, and Jesus healed it. He could witness to the miracles of Christ, and what did he do? He denied And at once, a rooster crowed. Now, let me ask you a question. Simple agricultural question. Why did the rooster crow? Because that's what roosters do. The, The night was ending. The darkness was ending. Dawn was coming. The light was emerging. Roosters crow when the night is ending. Now, you can imagine, you know, if you, if you live near roosters or train tracks, you know, over time, you may not pay as much attention to them. You may not even hear them. So maybe some of the people in this house didn't even notice the rooster crowing. But some did. But only one of them wept when he heard the rooster crow. And that was Peter. And why did he weep? Because Jesus had, fo- had prophesied Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter was operating almost almost as just an innocent bystander, just a witness here. He wasn't really realizing that he was a perpetrator of denial. And then the rooster crows and he wakes up and says, Wow, not only have I just denied Christ three times, but Jesus Christ through just a rooster, has prophesied the truth. You see, Jesus alone is holy. Jesus alone is faithful. Jesus alone is righteous. And Jesus alone is the fulfillment of prophecy. And these testimonies, with these strange witnesses, the high priest wasn't intending to testify to Jesus' holiness. The rooster wasn't intending to testify to the fulfillment of prophecy. But they were involved in this because our Lord is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the world. Now, what does this show us? What do these four testimonies in darkness show you? Well, I I think it should be pretty obvious that we need to listen to the testimonies, to listen to the testimonies regarding Christ, that he's the only, he alone is holy, he alone is faithful, alone is righteous, alone is the fulfillment. Listen to those testimonies. Have you heard them? Has the rooster awakened you? Are you aware who Christ is? Because John wants you to see these unexpected twists and say, wow, 
I know who Jesus is. Now there's, of course, a second obvious application from that. Not just to listen, but to testify. We have a number of people, individuals, including roosters, who are making testimonies. If you know the truth, if you listen to the testimony regarding Christ, testify yourself. Here's Peter, huddled with these guys around a charcoal fire. There are people dying, seeking warmth. The warmth that comes from lies and deceit. And you could testify to them the truth. Now let me offer you a slight twist on those two applications as well. It's not just to listen, and it's not just to testify. I think there's a third application. To listen and then testify. Here's what I mean. Listen to the people around you. The high priest was not wrong. Listen to the people testifying around you. Oh, well, uh, all roads lead to heaven. You could turn to them and say, I bet it seems that way, doesn't it? Tell me more about what you believe. Now let me tell you what Scripture says. The servant girl says, you're not one of his followers, are you? Listen to her. Why wouldn't you think I'd be one of his followers? Oh, because they're uh, criminals. No, we love. Listen to others and then testify to the truth. You see, we live in a dark world. You can be the one glowing in the dark. You can be the one taking the testimony of Christ and listening to what others have to say about Him and then testifying to them that He alone, alone, is holy, faithful, righteous, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's close in prayer. Oh, great Heavenly Father, You are the one true Lord. You are the one true Lord. John has presented these contrasts, these these scenes, to help us see just how we gather together in corrupt collusion with one another to deny You. And we ask that Your Spirit would rescue us from that because You rescued us from that. You have shown us that You alone are holy. Lord, this week, let us testify. Let us listen to others and testify the truth of who You are. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen.